All right, open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 24. We come this morning to the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. And you say, "Uh uh-oh, how long will we be there? (laughs) Actually, Lord willing, we're only going to be here two weeks because it's pretty easy going. It consists of 67 verses. This morning we're going to look at the first 33, and then my plan is to look at the the rest of it next week. It's a chapter which not only contains a delightful love story, which is refreshing after our funeral business last week, but it is also a chapter which presents a very critical event in, in the history of man's redemption. Isaac finds a bride. That's very important. It was important for Isaac to find a bride so that Isaac could have children and then carry on the messianic line through whom, of course, our Savior would be born. With perhaps the exception of Joseph, Isaac gives us the greatest prophetic portrait of Christ in all of the Bible, like the Lord Jesus. Now, we've talked about a lot of the ways in which he gave us a picture of Christ, but uh, like the Lord, he did come into this world by way of a supernatural conception. He was, as we learn, despised and persecuted by his brother, as the Lord was by his own brothers. Also, we learned quite a bit about the typology of Isaac in chapter 22. Isaac, assisted by the ram caught in the thickets, was almost a perfect type of Christ's willing sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Both his death, at least his father, in his father's eyes, he was like dead for three days. Both his death for three days and then his resurrection from that death also prefigured the Lord Jesus Christ. But the picture of Christ given to us in Isaac did not end with Mount Moriah, which was in the same location as Calvary. There are also many beautiful and fascinating parallels that we find between the quest for Isaac's bride, that we know was Rebecca, as given to us in this chapter, chapter 24, and also the calling out of the bride of Christ. Now, we'd already mentioned, you remember when we had come to the end of our look at Genesis chapter 22, we mentioned how it was very significant to read that only Abraham uh, was said to have come down from the mountain, from Mount Moriah. He's He's the only one that was specifically stated. That was in chapter 22, verse 19. Although we know that Isaac came down with him. Because Abraham didn't have to sacrifice Isaac, so Isaac did come down with Abraham. Yet the scripture only said that Abraham came down. And it was also pointed out that Isaac is not actually seen again in the account of Genesis until the time when he and Rebekah lift up their eyes and behold one another. And we'll see that in this chapter in verses 63 and 64. So what was the Holy Spirit doing when he was inspiring Moses to write all of this? The Holy Spirit was purposely pointing out or giving us a picture of Christ, who you see after his death and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, has remained, so to speak, up on the mountaintop. He has remained in heaven and will not descend again until when? Until the time that he receives his bride. The, the church until the church for the first time sets her eyes upon her bridegroom so it's a beautiful picture of the lord remaining in heaven after his ascent, his resurrection and his ascension and not being seen again until he comes at the time of the rapture for his bride and that's why isaac is not seen in all 
or he's not mentioned at all in chapter 23. We don't read of Isaac. We don't really see him in chapter 24 until he lifts up his eyes and sees Rebekah coming toward him. Now, something else is very interesting to mention with regard to the type of Christ, which is seen in these uh, great chapters, or this, this great chapter, chapter 24, or not this chapter. Actually, it was last chapter, but I, I'm saving it for this week. I didn't talk about it last week when we looked at the death of Sarah. Following the sacrifice of the ram in Isaac's place on Mount Moriah, and then the supposed, you know, resurrection of Isaac. It wasn't a literal resurrection, but in his father's mind, he was dead. He, you know, was ready to actually kill him. So following that, and then the, the purposeful non-mention of Isaac coming down from the mountain, what did we next learn of? I just said it a minute ago. In chapter 23, what did we look at last week? The death of Sarah. Now, do you remember back in our comparison study of Sarah and her Egyptian handmaid, Hagar? We compared the two women. We said that Sarah was a picture or represents the nation of Israel. She's a picture of Israel. Well, after the Lord Jesus Christ was sacrificed on Calvary, on the cross of Calvary, and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, the nation of Israel was set aside, right? She was set aside. She rejected. She was, we could say she was dead spiritually because she rejected her Messiah. Now, although Sarah will, I mean, she died, but she, we know that she will be resurrected to life and her spirit still lives in heaven. Yet God, although like Sarah, I should say Israel, um, will be resurrected to life. We know that God is not completely through with Israel. It says in the book of Romans that all Israel will yet be saved. You know, the, the life will be breathed on those bones that we see in the valley of dry bones in the book of Ezekiel. So although like Sarah, she will be resurrected back to life, yet God has, in a manner of speaking, buried her. After Israel's death, then what did God do? He sent forth the Holy Spirit. You know, Christ was in heaven. And who did he send? He sent the Comforter, our, our teacher, our guide. He sent the Holy Spirit to obtain a bride for Christ. And this is all just beautifully portrayed by Abraham sending forth his servant. The servant in this story we're going to see represents the Holy Spirit to get a bride for Christ. Uh, for, for Isaiah. For Isaac. <laughs> Isaiah? How did he get in there? <laughs> and the bride, Rebecca, she symbolizes us, the church. Uh, so it's just a beautiful picture. And then... Uh, we'll see at the end of this chapter that the bride was taken, Rebecca was taken to dwell in the tent of Sarah. You'll see that in verse 67. It's the last verse in this chapter. Just as the church has been brought in this age into the place of spiritual privilege presently vacated by Israel. So you, do you get it? It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Now, in our consideration, you have your notes in front of you, so you see the title for our lesson is The Quest for Isaac's Bride. 
and we're going to have a four point outline here we'll start by looking at the father sendeth then the servant goeth third the bride cometh and fourth the brother welcometh who knows who the brother was brother of rebecca laban yeah we'll be hearing a lot about laban in chapters to come okay so let's begin by looking at the father sendeth verses one to nine Chapter 24, starting at verse 1, it says, And Abraham was old and well stricken in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But thou shalt go unto my country and to my kindred and take a wife unto my son Isaac. And the servant said unto him, Peradventure the woman will not be willing to follow me unto this land. Must I needs bring thy son again unto the land from whence thou camest? And Abraham said unto him, Beware thou that thou bring not my son thither again. Verse 7, The Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and which spake unto me, and that swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land, he shall send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. And if the woman will not be willing to follow thee, then thou shalt be clear from this my oath. Only bring not my son thither again. And the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swear to him concerning that matter. Well, since we know from Genesis 25:20 20, that Isaac was 40 years old when he met and married Rebekah, we then know that Abraham at this point in time was 140 years old when he made the firm he finally came to the firm determination in his mind that it was time for Isaac to have a bride I would say so the man is 40 years old so it's time he has a bride now if there were going to be innumerable descendants for him uh, you know through Isaac which the Lord had promised to Abraham that he would have descendants as the grains of sand and the stars in the heaven. Well, then it was slightly important that Isaac get married, right? And have some children. And if the Savior himself was going to come through Abraham's line, through Isaac, then of course it was mandatory that Isaac have a wife. So this is a very important decision that they make now. Well, it was the custom then, as it is in, in some places yet today, for parents to make the marriage arrangements for their offspring. I like that idea. I really do like that idea. <laughs> you know, maybe not if I was the daughter, but as the mother, I love that idea. So Abraham set about to secure a suitable bride for Isaac, and he began this quest by calling out his eldest servant who ruled over it tells us he ruled over all that he had he really trusted this man now although this servant was very likely eliezer who was mentioned over in genesis 15 verse 2 yet we notice in this whole chapter 24 he is never mentioned by name 
And this, why do you think this would be? Well, this is probably so that he would more adequately uh, portray the Holy Spirit, who does not go forth in his own name, but in the name of Christ. The servant, you see, was to be sent forth in the name of Isaac, not in his own name. When God the... Oops, I'm jumping ahead. I'm sorry. When God the Father sent the Holy Spirit forth to obtain a bride for his son, the Lord Jesus, he was to be sent in whose name? In Christ's name, John 14, 26. The Holy Spirit would not speak of himself, but he would speak of the Master's Son. He would speak of Christ. He would glorify him, the Son, not himself. We see that in John 16, verses 13 and 14. The Lord Jesus himself said that. In the divine counsel of eternity past of the Trinity, it was determined to be the work of God the Holy Spirit to seek out the bride for Christ, the church. When was this work of the Holy Spirit begun? On the day of Pentecost. Now, throughout our look at this servant of Abraham's, who I'm going to be calling Eliezer because I do believe it was Eliezer, and one of the main reasons I believe it was Eliezer is because his name in Hebrew, I've told you this in a previous lesson, but his name means God's helper or God's guide. And that would, that's a perfect name for the Holy Spirit as well. Well, we find that throughout this whole account, he never draws attention to himself. He never speaks of himself. Rather, he went forth on the behalf of Isaac, and he spoke of Isaac. You know, he was there to, to call out a bride for Isaac, and so he magnified and lifted up Isaac. And so to emphasize his picture of the Holy Spirit, his name is never given. Now, if you remember back in Genesis 15 verse 2 um, when Abraham had thought at one point in time that he and Sarah would never have children he had wondered if God's promises to him about having descendants would be fulfilled in this man named Eliezer he was from Damascus Damascus it calls him Eliezer of Damascus well that was back in chapter 15. Now, by the time of Genesis 24, these two men, Abraham and Eliezer, had been uh, friends for a long time. They had spent many years together. And you'll see in these pictures I'm going to show you that I don't think the picture of this is Eliezer. I don't think that's at all accurate because if this is Eliezer, he was an elderly man and not young like that picture portrays. But... If there was anyone that Abraham knew he could trust with the critical commission to find Isaac a suitable wife, it would have been this eldest servant, this Eliezer of Damascus. He would be old, but he would be faithful, and he would be responsible, and he would be very dedicated to his master. So the servant was commissioned by Abraham to go into Mesopotamia, the former country of Abraham. Abraham came out of Ur of the Chaldees, which was all part of Mesopotamia. And he was to find uh, a bride for Isaac from Abraham's own kindred, his own family. And that's his commission. Now, because his task had to do with the future seed of Abraham and Isaac, Abraham made the servant place his hand under 
his thigh, under Abraham's thigh. That was so that his hand would be near to his loins. You know, that's where his seed would come from. And while he did that, he was then to swear to do all that he was asked to do. Furthermore, the servant was then said was asked to take his oath in the name of who? Jehovah, or it says the Lord in English, but that's Jehovah. Look at verse 3. The God of heaven and the God of earth. So we see that Abraham had no small idea of who the true God was. He knew who Jehovah God was, the God of heaven and earth. He knew that he was the creator God. And uh, also, this servant was definitely a believer. He believed in Jehovah God, the God of heaven and earth. And we'll see this as we go on through our lesson. So there were three promises that Eliezer vowed to uphold. First of all, he swore that he would not take a wife for Isaac from among the daughters of the Canaanites. We see that in verse 3. They were immoral people. Uh, they, they worshiped pagan gods. They were very immoral. They were very worldly. And so Abraham understood the importance of not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. He would not have a Canaanite young maid for his, wife, for his uh, son to be his wife. So that was a definite no-no. Secondly, Eliezer also swore, as Abraham requested, that he would select Isaac's wife-to-be from among Abraham's own relatives, from his former country, Mesopotamia. And we see that in verse 4. So the girl would be from the same descendants of Shem, like Abraham. Also, of course, he was looking for a girl who knew the true God. Third, he was not to take, and this is stressed several times, he was not to take Isaac back into Abraham's former country. In other words, he was not to carry Isaac with him when he went over to Mesopotamia. Now, the third part of that vow had been the one I just said about not taking Isaac away from the land of Canaan. That had been brought up in response to a question that the servant had asked of Abraham in verse 5. Eliezer had asked Abraham what he was to do if the young woman he found that he was led to, if she was not willing to come back with him, would his oath, the vow he had taken, would that compel him to return to Canaan? You know, because can you imagine a girl saying, yes, I'll marry somebody she's never seen before, right? So she says, well, listen, I want to see this dude first. <laughs> so Eliezer's thinking, well, she's probably not going to come with me, so I'll have to go all the way back to Canaan and get Isaac and bring him back with me a second time. And uh, so that's what he's essentially asking, is, is his oath, he's an old man, he said, is my oath going to compel me to do that, to travel all the way back, get Isaac and go back again? He wasn't looking forward to doing something like that. Well, Abraham's answer, which was that Isaac was not to go back with him, you know, under any circumstances, that made it clear that the promises of God to him, to Abraham, were inseparably linked with the land, with the land of Israel. Abraham did not want Isaac to leave the land, period. His descendants were to inherit that land, and he didn't want to take any chances. If, if Isaac left Canaan, he might be tempted 
to stay in the land of his wife. Remember that happened with uh, Jacob. He wound up staying a long 14 years out of the, the land in order to obtain his bride, Rachel. So uh, he didn't want for him to be tempted in any way to even maybe uh, be drawn away from God, be drawn away from the land, because all the promises concerned the land. He needed to be in the land. His, the land was for um, his descendants. God was going to give the promised land to Abraham's seed through Isaac, and therefore Isaac must not leave it, not even to go and seek a wife. Furthermore, a maiden who was not willing to see God's hand in the arrangement and to step out in faith to leave her parents and her own country in order to cleave to her husband she would not be the young woman that God had selected for Isaac. Because, you know, he wanted a woman who would walk by faith and not by sight, that she would just trust what the servant had to say about the master's son. You see how this is a picture of the church? We walk by faith and not by sight. We've never, have you ever seen your bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ? But in order to ease the servant's mind, Abraham stated that he would free his servant from that oath, from that vow, if the young woman he found refused to marry Isaac, not having seen him. Now, it had to be on the servant's mind how difficult a task he was being asked to accomplish. He not only was to travel a long way from Hebron, which is where they were living now, based on the fact that that's where they were when Sarah died, to, uh, he would not only have to travel a long way to find Abraham's brother's family, which would be his brother Nahor, but then he had to find a suitable young lady with some very specific qualifications and a lot of additional character qualifications that we're going to be talking about in a minute. Furthermore, she herself, and this would probably be the most difficult part, she herself would have to be willing to believe a man she had never met before. She'd have to believe who? Eliezer. And what his message was about the master's son. So she'd have to believe a man she had never met before, go to a land she had never seen, and which most likely she would never return from, in order to marry a man whom she had never seen as well. And so you can see why he was thinking that he had a very difficult little task in front of him. So besides releasing him from his vow, if the girl refused to return to Canaan with Eliezer, then Abraham encouraged his servant by reminding him that the Lord God of heaven had guided him, had guided Abraham, and had blessed him ever since he had called him from his father's house. And Eliezer would have known that because he had been with Abraham all those years. He would have known that God had indeed been faithful. Abraham then reminded Eliezer that God had promised him that his seed would inherit the land, which meant that uh, God knew Isaac had to have a wife so that she could give him a child. So he's just, you know, reminding Eliezer of all this. And so he assured Eliezer that his task, even though it seemed very difficult, it was in God's plan and God's purpose. And therefore, look at verse 7, God would send his angel before him to guide him to the right place and to the right young woman. So with his commission established, 
and all these assurances given, the servant did put his hand under Abraham's thigh, and he sware to him concerning all of these matters. So he was ready to begin his quest for Isaac's bride. Let's look now at verses 10 to 14. The servant goeth. And the servant took ten camels of the camels of his master and departed, for all the goods of his master were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia unto the city of Nahor. And he made his camels to kneel down without the city by a well of water at the time of the evening, even the time that women go out to draw water. And he said, here's a little prayer, O Lord God of my master Abraham, I pray thee, send me good speed this day and show kindness unto my master Abraham. By the way, he calls his master, he, he calls Abraham his master 19 times in this chapter. He says, show kindness unto my master Abraham. Behold, I stand here by the well of water and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water and let it come to pass. Now, look how specific he gets here. Let it come to pass that the damsel to whom I shall say, Let down thy pitcher, I pray thee, that I may drink. And she shall say, Drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. And thereby shall I know that thou hast showed kindness unto my master. Abraham's servant here, Eliezer, immediately began to put together a caravan for his journey to Mesopotamia. Now, because he was going to be going on a long trip, he needed to be equipped, of course, with many supplies such as food and extra clothing and uh, camping gear and... Uh, cooking utensils and whatever else, tents, whatever else they carried with them. In addition, he packed many of his master's valuables or his master's goods as gifts for the prospective bride and, of course, her family as well. In fact, ten camels, I didn't, couldn't find a picture with ten camels, but ten camels were needed to transport all that he took with him, including the men that he brought along for protection and for other uh, needs. And you can read about the men in verse 32 and over in verse 59. There were men that went with him. How many, we don't know. Well, camels were not yet a very common thing in that day. So the possession of 10 for a, a mission like this, you know, a simple mission just to go and get a, a bride, that conveyed the message of the considerable wealth of Eliezer's master. Was Abraham wealthy? Yes, very wealthy. Well, so then when everything was packed up and ready to go, Eliezer, the, the faithful servant, arose and went to Mesopotamia, the city of Nahor. Now, another possible name for the city of Nahor was Haran, H-A-R-A-N, to the north. Here's where they were in Hebron. They traveled up to Haran, up here in upper Mesopotamia. Haran, you remember, was the city in which Abraham had delayed when he had first left Ur. In fact, he had remained there until his father Terah had died, and we read about that in Genesis 11.32. Now, his whole, Eliezer's entire journey from Hebron to Haran, we know they had been a long journey and probably 
things happened along the way, but the entire journey is simply passed over without a single comment. All that is recorded for our benefit is that he departed in verse 10 and he arrived in verse 11. So we don't know anything about the journey. Well, when he and his men came to the edge of the city by a well, the wells were always outside of the city, and that's not a really good picture of of what the well would have looked like because it had steps going down. But anyway, when they got to the well, Eliezer had the camels kneel down to rest. We see that in verse 11. And what time of day was it? It was the early evening and this was precisely the time of day and I don't know if the Lord did this or if Eliezer purposely planned this but he planned I think he planned it to arrive there um, at the early evening the time of day when the daughters of the city he knew would be going out to the the wells outside the city to draw water for their households they didn't go in and get it in the heat of the day. They waited until the sun was just beginning to go down, and that's when they would go and get the water, fill up their pitchers. And Eliezer, of course, would have been very familiar with this custom, and he probably figured that this would be a very good way to observe all the young maidens of the city. That was good planning, right? Good thinking. However, it would be quite another matter altogether to find the right young lady for his master's son and to know that she was the right young woman. Now, there were some definite criteria, of course, that Eliezer knew to look for. For example, she had to come, as we've already mentioned, she had to come from Abraham's own people. She had to be related to Abraham, and this, of course, is why he went to Haran, where they had gotten word that Nahor was living with all of his uh, descendants. And, And this is why he did not look among the Canaanites for a wife or among any other pagan peoples. He went to seek a spouse among Abraham's relatives. In seeking a wife with the right kind of character, the believer today should not go looking in the wrong places. If you want to, you know, if you have a son or a daughter who's looking for someone to marry, do you think it's wise if, if they're a believer for them to go looking for a spouse in the bars? And in the other dens of iniquity, of course not. That's, you go to the right places where you're going to find a, a, a believer with the same beliefs as you. The best place to meet a spouse is in church, right? Or in a Bible study or in a youth group or something like that. Or in a Christian school. Eliezer also knew that a wife for Isaac was, of course, to be godly and to be virtuous. She must be a virgin. Very, I mean, that wasn't even an if in those days. She had to be a virgin. Furthermore, it was desirable that she be fair to look upon, which does not mean that she had to be beautiful, although Rebecca was beautiful, we're told that. But she didn't have to be. What it means when it says that she needed to be fair to look upon, she needed to keep herself well. You know, a good appearance is more than just a person's natural beauty, isn't it? A a good appearance, my husband always says he likes me the best when I have a smile on my face. (laughs) I don't care if I have any makeup on or curlers. He says, I just, he said, and isn't that true? A person can have a very pleasant countenance and and be good to look upon if they have just a nice, pleasant smile. And so it it involves also, of course, it involves good hygiene habits. You know, if if your daughter brings home this sloppy-looking guy 
with hair, green hair, and it's down to here and earrings all over and his pants, you know, his groin down to there. <laughs> what does that tell you right away? Is that the one you want her to marry? No. So, you know, it involves good hygiene. You can tell a lot by the way a person dresses. You can. You just can. And uh, you want somebody well-groomed and someone who cares about the temple that the Lord has given them. Neatly dressed and all that sort of thing. Well, thinking about some other characteristics or qualifications for an appropriate wife for Isaac, Eliezer may have thought to himself, and probably did, that she would also need to be healthy and strong. I mean, not only was she going to need to have to take a long trip back with him, but she would have to have the responsibility over a large household of servants. She was essentially going to be taking sort of Sarah's place for a while anyway. And she would also, you know, have to be in charge of all her future children. She would need to be a take-charge kind of a woman, industrious and not lazy. You don't want your sons and daughters, or yourself, if you're not married, you don't want to marry a lazy person. Ooh, 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 if somebody's lazy, that's a red flag, stay away. So he's looking for somebody who's industrious. He would not also, he would not be inclined to pick a wife for his beloved master's son who was self-indulgent or selfish or spoiled. You know, one who would take advantage of Isaac's great wealth in order to live a life of ease and comfort and sit back, you know, kick up her heels and be a couch potato. Mostly, however, Eliezer felt inclined to look for a young girl who was gracious and kind with good manners, not only at work, you know, at the well, but also in the home place, one who was considerate of others, even strangers, one who had a compassionate spirit, and one who had good relation, a good relationship with her parents and with her siblings. All these things would be very desirable characteristics for a wife for Isaac. They're also very desirable characteristics for a spouse of a believer today, whether a, a male or a female. Now, it would be very difficult for Eliezer to make all of these character assessments of every girl and woman who came out to the well. As he had had many days in traveling to think about a plan, he must have determined that he would initiate a conversation with the first young woman to whom he felt led. I mean, Abraham had said the angel of the Lord would, or an angel of the Lord would be guiding him. So to the first woman he felt drawn to, he would initiate a conversation. And since they were situ situated at a well, the most obvious way to initiate a conversation would be to do what? To ask her for a drink of water. Who else had done this at a well many years later? Right, the Lord Jesus did this when he initiated the conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. So he would initiate the conversation, ask her to have a drink of water. Yet, just about every young girl would be, in that day, would be polite enough to an obviously wealthy stranger to give him a drink. So that still would not tell him all that he needed to know about her character. However, if a young woman was willing to offer to also give his ten camels water and then carry through with that job, 
you know, on her own initiative. She would see a job that needed to be done. She'd say, hmm, I won't leave that for somebody else. I'll do that job. And then she would do it without complaining or quitting just, you know, before the the difficult task was complete and that she would do it with a diligent and joyful spirit. Then what would that tell him? That would tell him that uh, surely this young girl had the qualities that he was looking for in a, a very suitable wife for Isaac. Why? Well, because it would be going the second mile for sure. It would be something very unusual for a young maiden. Uh, In fact, Eliezer himself would never ask a young girl to do such a task because this this would be a very difficult task. The camels would be tired and very thirsty. And a camel will drink, one camel will drink up to 10 gallons of water. I actually read one commentary that said 40 gallons of water. Well, I'm not going to assume that one is going to drink 40. Let's say, because I read elsewhere, maybe they had had water a little the, the day before. So let's say that each camel would drink, on an average, between 4 to 10 gallons of water. And how many camels had he brought with him? 10, which would mean as many as 100 gallons of, anywhere from 40 to 100 gallons of water, which would have to be hand-carried, and she didn't have a hose, (laughs) hand-carried from the well to the watering trough. And we know, from what we'll read in a little bit, that there were steps down to the well as well. steps to the well. So it would also involve going up and down the steps to fetch the water. Any young lady, you see, who would would volunteer for such a task to a total stranger, especially one with not just one or two camels, but with ten camels, that girl would make a great wife. That's the kind of girl you want to look for for your sons, (laughs) one like that. Amen. (laughs) So with this plan in mind, Eliezer prayed to the Lord regarding his proposed test. Now this wasn't comparable to laying out a fleece. This wasn't the same as what Gideon did. This was a test to find a woman with the kind of characteristic and qualities that he knew would make a great wife for Isaac. So he prayed, we see the prayer, I won't read it again for time's sake, but he prayed to the Lord regarding all of this, that this is what she would volunteer to do. And we see that in verses 12 to 14. Now, unknown to Eliezer, the Lord was answering his prayer while he was even yet praying because Rebekah was at that very moment, even while he was still praying, she was on her way to the well. Verse 15. So Eliezer may have thought that his quest for a bride for Isaac would take him considerable time. Yet when he prayed specifically and turned the results over to God, what happened? The results came very swift. So let's look next at the bride cometh, verses 15 to 28. Now it starts getting good. 15. And it came to pass before he had done speaking that, behold, Rebekah came out, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, with her pitcher upon her shoulders. And the damsel was very fair to look upon, a virgin, 
Notice how important it is that she be a virgin because it's emphasized twice. A virgin, neither had any man known her. Make sure we know that she was a virgin. And she went down to the well, see, down to the well, and filled her pitcher and came up. There were steps down to the well. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Let me, I pray thee, drink a little water of thy pitcher. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she hasted and let down her pitcher upon her hand and gave him drink. Verse 19, And when she had done giving him drink, she said, Oh, my. I will draw water for thy camels also until they have done drinking. And she hasted and emptied her pitcher into the trough and ran again unto the well to draw water and drew for all his camels. And the man, this is Eliezer, wondering at her, you can just see him, held his peace to wit whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. And it came to pass, as the camels had done drinking, that the man, Eliezer, took a golden earring of half a shekel weight and two bracelets for her hands of ten shekels weight of gold and said, Whose daughter art thou? Tell me, I pray thee. Is there room in thy father's house for us to lodge in? And she said unto him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, which she bare unto Nahor. She said moreover unto him, we have both straw and provender enough and room to lodge in. And the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who hath not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth, I being in the way. The Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. And the damsel ran and told them of her mother's house these things. 